Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. The Liberal Party of Canada is, without a doubt, one of the most successful political organizations on the planet. It has governed Canada for almost 60% of the time since 1867. It probably comes fourth in that premier league of political success after the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom, which goes back over 200 years or the Institutional Revolutionary Party in Mexico, which was created in 1929 and which has totally dominated government in that country, or even the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan, which has been in power since it was created in 1955, except for four years. And yet, for a time, from 2006 until 2015, many people thought that it was done. Of course, that was not to be, and in 2015, the Liberal Party roared back to power and has been re-elected twice since, albeit with minorities. My guest today is Brooke Jeffrey, who has been an exceptional chronicler of the grits. Her recent book is Road to Redemption, the Liberal Party of Canada, 2006 to 2019, and it's published by the University of Toronto Press. Dr. Jeffrey is a professor of political science at Concordia University, and I reached her at her office in Montreal. Brooke, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. It's a pleasure to be here, Patrice. You're the witness to yesterday for this episode, Brooke. What happened on May 2nd, 2011? Well, I guess it depends on which side of the fence you were on, but if you were a liberal, it was disaster. Um, never before, well, despite everything you've just listed about other political parties in other countries, here in Canada, the Liberal Party is often described as the natural governing party, and even when it wasn't in power, it was the official opposition. So for the first time in history, in that disastrous election in May of 2011, the party fell to third place. It was no longer even the official opposition, and it had fewer seats than anybody had expected. Needless to say, total disaster. It was led by Michael Ignatieff. How do you explain the weakness of the party in that election? Well, I think there are some immediate problems unique to that election, and then there are some other things that we'll probably talk about later. In terms of the immediate, the first and most obvious is the leader himself. The Liberals have an unfortunate tendency to look for what I call messiahs. They have this messiah complex. And they thought they had a real winner in Michael Ignatieff. But the Conservatives, who are experts at this, managed to frame Ignatieff before he did it himself and described him, as I'm sure we all remember, as someone who was just visiting Canada, who was in it for himself, a kind of a carpetbagger, who'd come back for no particular reason, and so on. So the leader's image was very poor. The party had no money. The party had no organization. And, of course, this was the party that was always called the Big Red Machine, so that was a shock to everybody as well. And probably the most important thing from my point of view, and I certainly deal with this at some length in the book, the party had a platform that made no sense. At one and the same time, they were going to do all sorts of wonderful liberal-like things, but they were not going to increase taxes, and they were not going to have any cuts. And virtually nobody believed this was possible. In short, they were victims of what I describe as the complex about neoconservative uh, framing of the discourse of politics. If you accept 
that you can't have uh, an increase in taxes and you can't make any cuts anywhere, then of course you're not going to be able to budget for anything. And it wasn't until 2015 that we got over that hurdle and went back to what I would call liberal values. I get the sense reading your book that well, we could talk about Michael Ignatieff uh, in detail uh, later, but it wasn't, I mean, the party weaknesses didn't start with Michael Ignatieff's um, achieving leadership in the Liberal Party. There are a lot more problems going back much deeper in, in time, aren't there? Oh, for sure. Um, a few people have, in fact, talked about this. Ken Carty, for example, at UBC has talked about this. Really what happened is that the Liberal Party was a victim of its own success. It always uh, reinvented itself when it was in opposition, so it really had to take advantage of those few times when it was. And there weren't very many of them, and it frittered away a couple of them without doing that essential work. So by the time we got to the 2000 election, it had been short of money forever. It had been short of organization forever. Nobody noticed it, but uh, it was the case. And it was a long, steady decline. It wasn't even really a national party. It had lost the West, and now it was losing Quebec. It was really basically uh, an urban party of a very few large municipalities, Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal. And it led some people, as you correctly said, to think that really it was done like dinner. This was the end of Liberal Party of Canada. How far back do you have to go to uncover the roots of these weaknesses, of these contradictions? I, I, I get the, the sense that um, the Liberal Party never recovered from the defeat of 1984 when it was led by, by John Turner. Would you go further than that, or is it more recent than that? Well, I, I, think, I think you're exactly right about what happened after Turner, but I also think it's a little earlier. If you look at the Pearson era, you see the last real example of major renovation and rehabilitation of the party. They did structural things, they did organizational things, and they did platform things to make liberalism relevant to a new time period. Look at all the uh, legislation that Pearson's government introduced, even though they were a minority. It was amazing. So that's the last time they really did that. And one of the problems, I think, uh, that started under Trudeau, and it's not his fault, I'm certainly not suggesting that, but he was such an exceptional leader that everybody thought that they needed to find the next Trudeau. And that started this Messiah thing, which produced John Turner, which produced Paul Martin, which produced Ignatieff, and so on. So that's one of their problems. But they also weren't paying attention to the fact that the Conservatives um, as Dalton Camp, a famous or infamous conservative, once said, you know, we're in the 21st century and the liberals were still back with the horse and buggy. They were doing very genteel tea parties to get people to show up for elections. The conservatives had computers. And, and you can't win an election that way. I'm curious about this messiah uh, complex. You know, you're, 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 quite, you're quite right, thinking back. Um, you know, when when uh, we're going back into the 19th century here, when George Brown retired, of course, the, the bright light was Edward Blake. 
And Edward Blake, a former Premier of Ontario, he bombed out. I mean, he was very much, I mean, he was the worst defeat until Michael Ignatieff, I think. Am I, am I right about that? I think so. Yeah, no, you're right. That's right. Yes. And Edward Blake was, a, you know, in his day, a formidable orator, and he was brilliant beyond measure and all these things. He bombed out. They brought in Wilfrid Laurier, who was a bit of an unknown, but a rising star in Quebec. And there's sort of a messiah complex, but a minor one, because he was in opposition for 10 years. But then after uh, Laurier dies in 1919, they bring in Mackenzie King, who was a bit of a messiah. He'd been a, a cabinet minister in Laurier's government, and he was a man full of ideas. When he uh, retires, they bring in another messiah, Louis Saint-Laurent, who was, you know, by far uh, an extremely popular man in Quebec and had, had, you know, was now the minister of external relations. Uh, and, you know, and, and his victory in 1949 was, was, was the biggest, I think, the Liberals ever recorded. When he retires, when he's defeated in 57, the Liberals bring in another messiah, Lester B. Pearson, who just won the Nobel Prize for peace, right? I mean, it was a wonderful thing. When he retires, they bring in Pierre Trudeau, uh, an eminent, as you point out in, your, in one of your books, <laughs> uh, you know, clearly a, a superstar among uh, cabinet members who'd done many different things, who had a, an electric presence and who, who ran a fantastic campaign in 68. And then when he retires, they bring in another messiah john turner and then, and then it seems to me brooke that things sort of went sideways that the the messiah uh what's the word the, the messiah magnet sort of failed on the liberals they decided to go with with different kinds of people they went back to to jean chrétien who had a lot of marvelous qualities clearly and then after that they think of of, of of paul martin and after that we have monsieur dion uh and then we have uh, Mr. Ignatieff, did the Liberal Party redefine what it means to be a messiah? In other words, is that, I guess that's my question. Well, I, I, they made mistakes, obviously. And I think the key thing that you mentioned with many of the early leaders, yes, they were charismatic or well-known, had curb appeal, whatever, but they also had a tremendous amount of experience. Political experience. Political experience, yes. I mean, many of them had been in the cabinet. And and on top of that, they there was a consensus about what liberal values and beliefs were. And so everybody was on the same page, essentially, about that. But what happens with Turner, of course, is, and this is something I deal with in the first book, Divided Loyalties, a new issue arises, which nobody ever expected, the liberals found themselves on the wrong side of the issue about the Constitution and federalism. And I think one of the defining things about the Liberal Party, as opposed to the Conservatives and the NDP, is that it's always been in favor of a fairly, at least, strong central government as well as strong provinces, and perhaps a bit more centralist than others would like. But both the NDP and the Conservatives are decentralist. And as long as that paradigm held, then liberals were fine. But one of the reasons they didn't reinvent themselves when they were in opposition after Turner was because they were busy fighting about Meech Lake and Charlottetown. And it took it took Jean Chrétien, who came back to power on a promise, and I don't think anybody really appreciated how very amusing this was. His campaign platform pledge was that he wouldn't go near the Constitution 
for you know as long as he was in power, he promised that you know sort of a negative promise. I won't do this. And uh, after Mulroney, of course, with two failed attempts, that was the right thing to say. But it didn't resolve the issue in the party. And so it wasn't just that uh, Martin and Ignatieff and company were uh, unknown, hadn't been in cabinet, hadn't really been in government at all, uh, but they didn't have the same shared values. They were a bit right of center compared to the uh, others that you mentioned. And on top of that, they had this completely different approach to federalism. And it caused a huge amount of conflict and angst in the party. When you get Trudeau coming back, you, you know what you know what we got then—a a return to the the uh, dogma of the Liberal Party. What's been the strength of the Liberal Party over the last? I don't, you, you you pick over the last fifty years or even the last hundred years. I mean, the reality is that despite all these these disabilities, the Liberal Party still comes back strong under Mr. Chrétien, and. Uh, after 11 years of, uh, of of the Harper Conservatives, uh, again they come back with Mr. Trudeau. What are the strength? What are the strengths of the Liberal Party? Right, I th I think, and the Conservatives knew it, of course, which is why Mr. Harper tried so hard to destroy the party entirely. It is the natural governing party. One of the strengths of the Liberal Party, when it has leaders who articulate typical traditional liberal values, tolerance, compromise, consensus, centrist sort of view of the world, and so on. Politics is the art of the possible, quite apart from the platform that any particular time period has. The liberal values are Canadian values. And, you know, <laughs> the conservatives are always very unhappy that the flag is red or that, you know, there are other things that uh, seem to coincide between the Liberal Party visually and uh, Canada, but it's true. Canadians are in the same place, and that's why the Conservatives have to try so hard to win an election, because they're not the natural governing party. Their values and beliefs aren't where most Canadians are. So that's the first strength. And the second one, traditionally, had been that Liberals figured out how to showcase those values in terms of a platform that spoke to the time period. Mr. Trudeau said that, Mr. Pearson said that, Wilfred Laurier said that. Every one of them has made that point. And of course, Justin has followed in his father's footsteps. But neither Paul Martin nor John Turner nor Michael Ignatieff really knew that. What does it take to lead the Liberal Party then? I mean, your, your, bo your book focuses on the years after 2006 uh, through three different four different leaders, right? Mr. Martin, Mr. Dion, Mr. Ignatieff, Mr. Trudeau. No, and, and, and by the way, there's also uh, Bob Ray in all this. Yes, and Bill Graham too, the temporary leaders. And Bill Graham, how can I forget? Yes. <laughs> there's a lot of different men in all this, uh, aren't there? Yes, there are. What qualities does it take to lead the Liberal Party? Well, again, I think the first thing you have to do is have someone who understands liberalism, who's really quite clear on what liberal values and beliefs are, and several of the people you've mentioned weren't uh, very clear about that. Um, but the second thing is that you have to be able to demonstrate that you can speak to Canadians, one, on the traditional left-right spectrum, and that you can show centrism it works, that compromise, consensus, tolerance, et cetera, is a good thing, and that you don't want the black and white of the Conservatives or the NDP. And you also have to be in the right place on this federalism spectrum. You have to talk a lot about national unity and the idea that Canada is the distinct society and so on. And 
Trudeau Jr. here has done a tremendous amount of that in the time he's been in government. He spent endless amounts of time talking about what Canada is. People used to make fun of Jean Chrétien because he said he loved Canada, but I think Justin has shown repeatedly what that means in terms of national identity. What about the approach to the West, Brooke? I mean, the West has, has been a really sore spot for the Liberals, um, arguably since the days of Pearson. Uh, certainly Mr. Trudeau had a hard time communicating with Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba. It seems to have been a real Achilles heel for the Liberals. What's your thought on that? Yes, that's absolutely true, and I point out that I'm from BC. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also point out that I uh, became fluently bilingual in BC, thanks to Mr. Trudeau Pair. Uh, I was determined to do that. He, he inspired me to do that. And now you'll find in my home province a lot of schools, even in the interior, even in the infamous Salmon Arm Salute area, where children are going to school in immersion. So, you know, things have changed. But... The West is not homogenous, and certainly BC has very little in common with Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. So let's just take the three prairie provinces, and really Alberta, Saskatchewan, because that's where the Liberals are in trouble always in the last 50 years. And I think this speaks to the problem of political culture and political change. I know someone who grew up in Saskatchewan who's almost as old as I am, which means a dinosaur, and said at one point to me the other day, you know, this isn't the Saskatchewan I grew up in. And of course it isn't. Um, the oil industry is very strong in southern Saskatchewan as well as Alberta. There's been a tremendous influx of Americans to these areas. So the, the original thing that Seymour Martin Lipset used to talk about, the difference in culture from uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, no longer holds. This is not the province with Scott Moe in charge that talks about uh, Medicare, co-ops, you know, the kind of things that, that were so popular in the past. This is a very different place. It's not Tommy Douglas anymore. <laughs> no, it isn't. And, and Or e even, you know, uh, um, Rory Romano from a later time period. So it's a problem. There's no doubt about it. There is a different set of values and beliefs there than there used to be. Um, but I think liberals haven't tried hard enough either to understand the West and to see where they can find some common ground. I was very inspired when Mr. Trudeau went to— Fort McMurray. Fort McMurray, thank you. He went out there almost immediately Yes. Uh, and talked about Canadians helping each other and so on. And I thought that was a really good move. And, of course, he has spent a great deal of time in B.C., and it showed that it's paid off in the elections— but he needs to do more in Alberta and Saskatchewan to convince people there, and in fact, I think, to educate them about how much they benefit from national programs and a national government. It's also a question of making their vote a little bit more efficient. I mean, the Liberals still do get a good chunk of voting, of support in Saskatchewan and Alberta in particular, uh, Manitoba. That's right. I mean, they, they rarely get less than 25%, so yes. it's not a wasteland. <laughs> and of course, this time they did, they did actually elect some people in Alberta. Yes. What surprised you the most, Brooke, about the men? Again, I emphasize the men who led the party after Paul Martin resigned. Is there something in particular that surprised you? Uh, let's start with Mr. Uh, Mr. Zion. Well, I was flabbergasted that he became the leader. 
Uh, I'm enough of an insider that I shared the views of a lot of people I quote in that book. Anybody who knew him uh, in terms of a career um, was absolutely sure that this would never work. Why? <laughs> well, you know, he came to politics at the invitation of Mr. Chrétien straight from a university, far be it from me to say that, you know, academics can't make politicians. I'd like to think some of us could, but but he isn't one of them. You know, he's the least politically inclined. He's not a political animal uh, in any way, shape, or form. And on top of that, he was he had no connection to the Liberal Party whatsoever. So it, it isn't an accident that I was easily able to find quotes in Le Devoir that said things like, même Dion serait de la course. You know, like even Dion is going to run in this, in this uh, leadership race. They were astonished. So the fact that he ran was a surprise. The fact that he won was a surprise. Uh, and almost everything that happened afterwards wasn't. And I'll, I'll just leave it at that. If, if people who are familiar with um, the way that he... Uh, would operate in politics would not have been surprised either. And yet he still propounded a green approach. He, I mean, his his views were modern. He took he took the climate challenge seriously, uh, and yet and yet it, his ideas were not enough. The personality simply didn't carry. Well, yes, uh, I mean, for sure he was a man ahead of his time, and 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 of course he also was very uh, crucial in the Plan B approach after the referendum in terms of dealing with Quebec. I mean, he made a contribution, there's no question about it. But, you know, people who are effective as ministers, as Paul Martin demonstrated, don't necessarily make good leaders either, even when they have some experience. There is a different set of—you need the royal jelly, basically. And if you haven't got it, it's hard to lead other people. Just ask Garen O'Toole. Royal jelly? Certainly that was Michael Ignatieff? No, I'm afraid not. No? Michael Ignatieff was is is, uh, is was when he acceded to the leadership, uh, internationally known author, a serious man with serious ideas, and yet, as, as you said earlier, it's it's the worst defeat in the Liberal Party's history. What went wrong there? Well, again, and I don't know Mr. Ignatieff very well at all. Um, only met him a few times and spoken to him and so on. But I think, you know. The, <laughs> It's hard to frame someone, even uh, with all the money the Conservatives had, if there's no truth at all to what they are trying to say. And I I couldn't resist using the quote that I did for uh, Mr. Ignatieff at the start of the chapter about him from his own autobiography, where he regales us with what I I probably would never have <laughs> told anybody if this had happened to me. But... Once he uh, was thinking of running for leader, then the people around him who were promoting him took him to a number of liberal gatherings uh, and people, you know, bag men to fund his leadership race. And at one of them, where, where everybody remains nameless, he, he was asked by these people, well, why are you running? And he actually told them that he was running because he thought it would be a big challenge personally, and he was looking forward to seeing whether he could do it or not. Not good enough, eh? Yeah, <laughs> uh, that... that what can I say? It still makes me laugh. Um, it, it, and he said himself in his book, I realized that was the wrong answer. Uh, well, that, what a surprise. But of course, three years later, he still doesn't have the right answer. And he never really rebutted the framing of, I'm just visiting. Why couldn't he have given a speech where he was passionate about Canada and the Liberal Party and said, why 
Canadians needed to look elsewhere from Stephen Harper to, to put the country on the right path. He never gave one of those speeches. He never did. The the party elite, however, was still, I mean, and we're talking about the Toronto part of the Liberal Party elite, was deeply attracted to Ignatieff. They they sought him out. They they, they, they lured him back to the country for this. I mean, certainly they, they well, I'm asking you the question. Did, did this party elite, this party leadership uh, mislead the party in, in, in seeking Mr. Ignatieff? It's easy for us to say in retrospect, but I mean, at the time, and I'm asking you the question. I mean, this was this was clearly a mistake on their part. But I'm just wondering what leaves, what tea leaves were they reading? <laughs> um, well, I can't speak for them in the sense that uh, I wouldn't have done it. Yes. I actually, I'll tell you a little story. One of them, who remained nameless, uh, took me to lunch one day during this time period when Paul Martin was still the leader, but it was obvious that uh, the writing was on the wall, took me to lunch one day and and asked if I could keep a secret. And I I said, well, why would you even want to tell me? I'd I'd rather not know. Well, he wanted to tell me that they were thinking of going to get Mr. Ignatieff to come from Harvard and run. And I I practically dropped my teacup (laughs) and, and said, are we talking about the Michael Ignatieff who wrote Blood and Belonging, the Michael Ignatieff who's a, an academic in London and a, and, a, and a you know a broadcaster of special documentaries and so on and so Well, yes, they were. And I said, well, wh- why would you think he'd come back to Canada and why would you think he's a liberal? And I, I, I just, you know, for once in my life, I said the right thing at the right time so that I can repeat it afterwards and, and feel that I actually was prescient because, of course, those were the two problems. And, uh, you know, you can't just go out and pick someone because they're famous and and superficially attractive and then decide that they can run a political party. I, I, I was speechless then, and I continue to be speechless throughout that entire exercise. How do you read, then, the the choice of uh, Mr. Trudeau today, the Trudeau fils, Justin Trudeau? Uh, Did the party have a choice, really? I mean, was was he the candidate to rescue the party because of his family name? How do you read his accession to the leadership? Right. Let me just go back and say one thing about the other successful leaders. Even if they looked like they were outsiders, Pearson, for example, coming from the public service and and Pierre Trudeau coming from, you know, a variety of other places and hadn't been on the Hill for long, they had a set of values and beliefs. It was very clear they didn't have to they didn't have to decide what their values were after they took over. And and they pretty much had an agenda. Each of them knew what they wanted to do. Mr. Trudeau came to Ottawa with the three wise men because he was going to deal with the Quebec issue, right? And and I think Justin had an agenda. He's not just a pretty face, and, and he had more experience than some people thought, but he also had an agenda, and it involved, first of all, saying, I will not run to be leader of the party unless everybody agrees there's not to be any discussion of a merger with the NDP. This is just not on. And of course, there were people talking about that at that time. So, well, the defeat of twenty of twenty eleven was so was so grievous that a lot of people felt it was inevitable. Yes, yes, exactly. And and the party divided up into those who were 
horrified at the mere thought that anybody, you know, you were a traitor if you were talking about a merger of uh, the group that was opposed to that. And of course, the other people thought that the people who were opposed were just pie in the sky, Pollyanna optimists, don't worry, be happy and everything will be fine. Well, it wasn't going to be fine, but if you had a set of values and beliefs coming into it and an agenda, and of course, Justin Trudeau's other agenda was, and I really believe this, reconciliation. From the very beginning, he was talking about that. And, and the third thing is uh, on the um, climate change issue. He was very committed. So, you know, he had an agenda. It's a different agenda from his father, but he had it. But he also was very clear on the federalism axis. He was a central federalist, having, you know, learned at the knee of his father about that. So there was never going to be any question, unlike Mr. Ignati of Mr. Dion, Mr. Martin and so on, uh, of somebody, or Mr. Turner, of somebody turning around and approving a Meech Lake-like thing. So they were safe on federalism. They were safe on liberal values. It didn't hurt that his name was Trudeau, of course, but, you know, there were other people running there who could have been the leader, and I don't think it would have been a complete disaster either. But, uh, you know, clearly he was the right man for the right time. It's fascinating to hear you and to read you uh, in emphasizing the importance of liberal values, in, in emphasizing how the various leaders succeeded or failed in articulating liberal values, whatever they may be, um, but in articulating something that was fresh and yet something that, reson that resonated with Canadians of, of all sorts across the country, en anglais, en français, English and French, um, your, your emphasis on ideas, uh, again, in the book and, and, and listening to you, is refreshing. But let's talk about you for a, a few minutes, Brooke. This is your fifth book and your second book on the Liberal Party. Uh, our listeners won't be surprised. Uh, you do have a long association with the Grits going back to 1985 when you joined the Liberal Caucus Research Bureau. You left behind a solid career in the public service at that point. How has this... Um, how do I describe it? Observer participant status affected your approach in writing your books, do you think? Well, I think it's the only reason I could write them. Um, I once, as a student and undergrad at the lowest level, <laughs> uh, took a class in political parties. And the book on the Liberal Party was one where, from I won't mention the title and the author, but it basically said, Senator Davey told me this, Senator Davey told me that. You know, it was, yes. it was quite clear to me uh, that this person had no knowledge whatsoever of political parties. And I'll give you one other example which shows how you don't learn in academe the things that really matter. I'll remind our listeners that you are a professor of political science at Concordia. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I like I like to think we learn a huge amount, and it's very important, yes. obviously. <laughs> but but political parties are different animals, and uh, you know there's a reason why engineers do internships, or you know other people get exposed in various professions to how things actually work. But very few political scientists actually go and work at a political party. And uh, when I uh, took over as director of the Liberal Caucus Research Bureau. We were in opposition, and um, I showed up the first day at my office, and my secretary admin assistant uh, came into the office and said, oh, you're here. And I said, 
well, where did you want me to be? And and she said, well, I thought you'd be over in the center block uh, because uh, the tactics committee will be meeting in a few minutes, and I'm sure they'd like to meet you and so on. And I said, oh, really? So this is a committee that opposition parties set up, and every day, uh, first thing in the morning, they meet to discuss what they're going to ask in question period, in case people think it's just sort of a free-for-all in which anybody can stand up and ask a question whenever they're, you know, political parties control this quite a lot, uh, and they decide well in advance what's going to be asked and who's going to ask. So I, I sort of knew that. So I go over to the center block. My office was in a different building. And uh, I sit through tactics, and I come back. And the next morning, I'm in my office, and the, my assistant comes and says, oh, you're here. And I said, where would you like me to be? And she said, well, the tactics are... <laughs> I said, they do that every day? I was, I was stunned, because I thought I wasn't that impressed with how things had gone the day before, and the idea that I would waste, in my mind, an hour and a half every day sitting there listening to this discussion about who would ask questions, I was totally horrified. Well, of course, my mind had to be put on a completely different um, approach when I realized why this was so important and so on. So uh, you've either been there or you haven't. And you, you're convinced that by being an observer, by being inside the party, you can give the reader a, a sounder appreciation of the internal divisions? Is that, is that, I mean, you benefit from being, I mean, you benefit from the interviews that are given to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the first uh, eight to 10 years, I was a real insider. So all I had to do was observe uh, and I could soak up quite a lot. But subsequently, I've, you know, I've been involved and I've done things. And I was a candidate, actually, in, in the 93 election. But, but you, you have a different perspective when you're not right there on the hill in the, with the caucus, but you're working with the party or or with some uh, branch of the party on, on a variety of things. It's quite different. But it's a bit like the public service, too. You know, I mean, I've been out of the public service for 30 years, but when I see an article describing what's happening somewhere, I know right away what is actually happening. Some of the fundamentals don't change, and I'm sure you know what I mean by that. So, so you know, again, you've either been there or you haven't. Well, I, I, think, I think it's what gives your books... Uh, their 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 great appeal, uh, and it's and it's really it's a testament to the ability that you bring to the writing is that while we are aware of the fact that you're clearly benefiting from some insider knowledge, at the same time there is a high degree of objectivity in your in your writing in your books. Um, You've also written three books on the Conservative Party, and, and you can tell I own all your books. So how are the problems of the Liberal Party different from the Conservative Party? Oh, well, that's, an, that's another story entirely. Let, let me just go back, if you'll forgive me for a, a second, to the—I I appreciate you saying those words about objectivity. Uh, I also think you can't write the books I've written if you don't have an academic background. So lest anybody think it wasn't worth it to get a Ph.D., you know, I can use what I've learned in academe to evaluate what it is I see in the party. And that's that's the that's the benefit there. And I think that's also true about the conservatives. I mean, I, I would like to think I'm somewhat objective about their problems, but 
um, you can't help. Maybe a little less. <laughs> a little less, yes. <laughs> well, well, right now, I'm sorry, but, you know, this is a different kettle of fish. And, and really, that speaks to the question you've asked. If this were a progressive conservative situation, then, you know, their problems are that they're not always the national natural governing, well, they're not the national natural governing party, but they can build a coalition and they can share some values and beliefs about Canada with the other opposition parties, and they're prepared to work on the basis of consensus and compromise. But the minute that, and in my view, this is almost entirely his fault, Mr. Mulroney destroyed the Progressive Conservative Party with his, among other things, two failed constitutional attempts. And, you know, it's not an opinion. You can demonstrate this. That party collapsed. They got two seats in the next election, and you got a Reform Alliance fringe party in the West and a Bloc Québécois in Quebec. And that changed Canadian politics, hopefully not forever, but certainly for a long time. It meant that Mr. Krejcian could govern quite easily because the opposition was split, and it produced the Unite the Right movement. And then, of course, it produced a scenario where someone far more ruthless, far more intelligent, and far more ideologically driven than Mr. Mulroney, namely Stephen Harper, managed to get control. Well, then you you had a completely different ballgame. Uh, the way he micromanaged things the whole time he was in power, I, I was in complete awe of how he did that, uh, because you see what happens when he left. Here's the problem now for them. They're split down the middle. They've got right-wing uh, neoconservative and social conservatives in Western Canada trying to get along with uh, people in Quebec who might be separatists or nationalists, but also are pretty center-left on some issues. And the Tory uh, group that was absorbed into this thing, you know, people tried to say that it was a merger. The, the, ta <laughs> the reform tail is wagging the dog here. And you can see that every day with Mr. O'Toole and, and the people like Mr. Shear who are challenging him now. You think the conservatives have a harder time in reconciling diverging factions than the liberals do? Very much so. And it was less hard with someone like Robert Stanfield or Joe Clark or even Brian Mulroney. But, but now, I think the problem is this movement to... Uh, ideological certainty, this idea that people are right or wrong, that it's not a question of, you know, this is good, this is better, this is best, or, you know, like, I'll, I'll give a little here and you'll give a little there, and politics is the art of the possible. You don't get that from these conservatives. Do you think that the conservatives have less of a passion for winning, period? <laughs> uh, I can't speak to that, really. I'm sure there's some of them who'd love to win, but they, they don't know how, you know, and, uh, and it's patently obvious right at the moment. So let's look at the Liberals. Come back to the Liberals and the subject of your book. The Liberals have won the last two elections in 2019 and 2021, but they actually lost the popular vote twice. The Conservatives came in ahead in both cases. What's it going to take for the Liberals to recover enough support to win a majority again? Well, that's an interesting question, and I have to here put on my political scientist hat. Uh, I think we make a mistake when we talk about this as if it's a failing on the part of the Liberals and they just have to work harder and they'll get it. It's, it's related to what I just said before. With the collapse of the Conservatives and the creation of 
minority of uh, fringe parties, you had a different situation. This, this electoral system is set up to expect three parties, not six. And, and uh, over time, you know, we had the Socreds and now they're gone, but we also have now the Green Party, or maybe we don't, we're not sure. Uh, we have uh, Maxime Bernier's party. Um, and, and so, you know, it's difficult for me to see how any party is going to get a majority in the near future. Let's not forget the Bloc Québécois. And, well, I, I certainly am not forgetting, and that, that makes a huge difference, of course. And so I, I, I really am not at all sure that a majority for anybody is in the cards in the next little while. But it's also true the Liberals came awful close. And it's also true that in some of Western Canada, like especially Alberta, Uh, the numbers uh, skew the results, so to speak, and it's a lack of efficiency in the vote for the Conservatives, but it also produces this scenario. They get 85 or 90 percent of the vote in a riding in Alberta. doesn't get them any more seats, but it does make a difference in terms of who got the popular vote. Brooke, you've been watching politics for over 50 years. You've been writing great books for 30 years. What do you think has changed the most about Canadian politics since the day you first got interested? The absolute lack of civility. And, it, you know, it's a dangerous phenomenon which is coming up from the States. Um, when I was on the Hill, the members of Parliament from different political parties argued with each other in the House of Commons. The opposition disagreed with the government on some issues. And then afterwards, they all went out and played baseball, had a hockey game, went to the pub. You know, they, they called each other by their first names. They, they socialized with each other and so on. It was a club almost. Um, and that led to a lot of things, especially on committees. And you would see that in committees when witnesses came. And, I, I, you know, you, you don't attack a witness. You ask them questions. Well, now, and, and the example uh, when uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybo uh, was uh, on the Hill and having issues, and so we had opposition uh, questions in um, committee, and the questions to people like Mr. Wernick, for example. I mean, for heaven's sake, the clerk of the Privy Council. And there was no civility there. And there was no civility in the way some of those members addressed each other or the chair or anybody else. It, it really makes for a tense scenario before you even get to the actual issues. And, and then you get this black-white performance where things are right or wrong, there is no gray, And uh, politics is no longer the art of the possible. This has been fueled, do you think, by social media, or do you think it goes, it precedes that? I think it precedes that. I, I think it's part of uh, the trend to populism. You know, internationally, the discussion of illiberal democracies, um, people who vote for a political party whose views actually are anti-democratic, uh, you know, Hungary or some of the other Eastern Bloc, former Eastern Bloc countries. But I, I, I don't think we really want to spend any time discussing the tragedy south of the border. No. But <laughs> this is a Canadian podcast. <laughs> right. We don't want to see it here either. No. And, and we, if you'll forgive me, you know, I, I think in the last few days, I don't know what 
whether you time all these debates or not, but as it happens, we just had truckers in Ottawa. Yes. And and it wasn't the truckers, I think. It was the people who came along with them uh, who have absolutely no idea what a democracy is. And this hilarious, well, it would be funny if it wasn't sad, memorandum that they described, which was going to somehow have the governor general, senators, and truckers deciding on how Canada should be governed. Well, Canada has its comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. If, if Wayne and Schuster were still here, they would have done a lovely skit on that, I think. Brooke Jeffrey, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your insights with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Patrice. I was speaking with Brooke Jeffrey, and her recent book is Road to Redemption, the Liberal Party of Canada, 2006-2019, and it's published by the University of Toronto Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. I want to thank our sponsors, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. This podcast on Canadian political history was particularly sponsored by Mr. Don Bourgeois and Ms. Susan Campbell of Kitchener, Ontario, in honour of their parents, Jean-Marie and Mary Bourgeois, and Aloysius and Regina Campbell, who instilled in their children a passion for all of Canada and its political history. Thank you. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation or to become a member of the Champlain Society. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded on on January 31st, 2002, by Jessica Schmidt, our producer. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.